Salvation is not a meritocracy. It is not earned and it need not be supplemented with acts of righteousness, with deeds that we carry out, with additional rules, addendums onto the gospel as per scripture. The additional deeds that you carry out, the additional rules that you add on to the Bible, the additional tasks that you give yourself to add on to the work of Jesus in salvation, not only do they not save you, they keep you lost and arrogant in your lostness because they build self-righteousness. This is called legalism. Adding on of rules and legalities to the gospel, to take the Bible and to add on to it a list of laws to be followed. Jesus' work and salvation takes the whole Old Testament law and does not abolish it. There's not one stroke of the pen in the writing of the Old Testament law that will disappear. It will last forever. It is not as though the Old Covenant were a can of fix a flat. Like God in Eden saw sin happen and said, oh my, me, they've botched this. I got to get down there and fix this, but for now, this will work. No, the old covenant law was deliberate. It's the foundation upon which the gospel would always have been built. God is both the alpha and the omega. He lives in the end as he knows the beginning. None of this caught him by surprise. So the Old Testament law is the foundation upon which the gospel of the New Testament salvation is built quite perfectly. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And now in the New Testament, we have only one commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets are summed up in these. But it is common practice still to add additional teachings, to add additional rules and tasks, add on legalities that enslave people, saying it's not enough just to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you would be saved. You also have to abstain from caffeine. <laughs> My Mormon friend, your abstinence from coffee does not save you. It means that you are both still just as sinful only you are sinful without caffeine, which is even worse. <laughs> Adding on rules like this, trying to take us back as though the work of Christ has not fulfilled the dietary restrictions of the old covenant law. As though the work of Jesus were not sufficient to save and you need to supplement it with your own works of righteousness. This is heretical, it is demonic, it is downright satanic to pretend like the gospel only brings us to the one yard line and then we need to do additional acts of righteousness to help Jesus save us and carry it across the goal line. Like Jesus needs your help. The most righteous thing we could do is actually filthy before God. The most righteous thing that we get, we're so proud of it. We're all impressed with it. Look, God, look what I, I helped you with this. <laughs> the most righteous thing we can do, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is like a soiled garment before the Lord. 
Your works of righteousness don't save you. Right? This, this teaching is prevalent. It was common in Titus's context as people were trying to bring back old covenant teachings, like the circumcision party named in our previous week's sermon, like people who wanted to bring up quarrels about the law and bring up genealogies and disputes over genealogies. This, this, this legalism was prevalent in Titus's context and it's prevalent in ours as well. We may not have an infiltration of Judaizers trying to add on Old Covenant laws as though they were preconditions for New Testament salvation, but we do have legalism within forms of Protestant Christianity. The Protestant church can be prone to legalism too. Likewise, our friends in the Catholic church can add on all sorts of legalities to Christianity. But perhaps the most prevalent example is that of Mormonism in our culture, because that's exactly what it is. It is quite Luciferian to say that you will become the God of your own universe, that you will become like the Most High. That is exactly what Lucifer desired. Don't you see this? And I have sympathy for you, my Mormon friend. It breaks my heart to see you in your short sleeve, white, buttoned-up dress shirt with a black tie, pedaling and sweating, pedaling that bike hard as you can, thinking, I'm earning salvation, I'm earning righteousness, I'm earning heaven right now. No, you're not. You are chained to a false teaching, and you think that your works of righteousness are going to save you, that if you abstain from coffee and wear the weird shirt and wear the weird underwear and go door to door and share the Book of Mormon with people and try to argue them into your own enslavement, that you're going to earn good standing and you're going to earn righteousness, you're going to earn salvation, so you pedal and you sweat and you knock. And then every time somebody shouts in your face, you just take it and you call it persecution. I, I have sympathy for you, my Mormon friend. I do. Moreover, because this legalism of yours, this legalistic pursuit of yours, is built on shifting sands. You're chasing after an ever-moving goalpost. Because Mormonism itself, as a system of thought, has evolved with culture. There was a time when Brigham Young himself said that polygamy was necessary for salvation. That changed about the same time the laws did. You notice there's not a lot of, not a, lot, a whole lot of, not a whole lot of African Americans in the Mormon church. There's a reason for that. Mormon theology once taught that those of African descent cannot be saved. And then, in the one good shift they ever took in their theology, the Mormon church said, oh, actually, actually, hang on, guys. This just in, gang. As it turns out, but to this day, my black friends don't trust the Mormon church. The Mormon church used to be very outspoken, very forthright about homosexuality until about three years ago. It's convenient, isn't it? It is, it is shifting, it's moving. And you, my Mormon friend, are just pedaling so hard. You're trying so hard to earn salvation and the, the whole system of thought upon which your worldview is built is shifting, it's evolving, it's changing. Who knows what you'll believe 10 years from now. Can I invite you into the grace that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? It's unchanging. I know it sounds like I'm picking on Mormonism. That's because, well, I am. <laughs> I'm gonna spoil the ending of my sermon, though. Stay with me, okay? Because it's just gonna, it's just gonna end 
It's gonna end with just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's how, that's how the sermon ends. Don't tell anybody though, okay? This is our context. The original context for Titus had similar legalism. Paul is gonna speak to Titus to speak to the church. Let's listen in. In Titus chapter three, the most powerful chapter I've seen in the Bible for converting the heart of Mormons today. Titus chapter three. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our curriculum covers verses one through 11, and it was important to me that I include these final verses in the book of Titus, the final words of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Were they arranged in chronological order? It would start with 1 Timothy and then would come Titus and then 2 Timothy would be Paul's last letter. But in canonical order, so as to keep the letters to Timothy side by side, adjacent to one another within the canon, Titus comes here. Let's go back to verses one and two. The opening words can be abrasive to Americans. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Excuse me, I'm an American. Let freedom ring. <laughs> we can feel entitled because I'm going to let my patriotism show, like, because we have, like, the best constitution ever. I mean, our whole, our whole notion of freedom is built on the idea that we were endowed by our creator with rights. That's a novel idea within world history. We're not dispensed our rights from a despot or a throne we were born with rights that nobody can take away from us. That's a radical notion in the world stage. And the beautiful fruits of American labor and innovation are, are evident to that. So as Americans, we can become really entitled and we can look at teachings like these that say, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We actually take great pride in our freedom to criticize our government. 
But this is not the case for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. It's fascinating to be on a global mission trip to speak with somebody who lives in a government where, I mean, we as a team at Highlands Community Church may or may not have just smuggled Bibles in And to have a private conversation with somebody and say, like, it's okay, you could tell me, you, you can be honest with me, it's just the two, I'm not gonna, like, tell on you. You can just tell me how your heart, I can tell that you're really bitter towards your government for outlawing the Bible in your language. And even then, they're just so stricken with fear, they can't bring themselves to do it. We as Americans, however, have this freedom, and it's actually part of the point of the American experiment, that we would have this ability to criticize our government and speak freely about it. It's an important freedom, actually. So this... This command to be submissive to rulers and authorities can rub us the wrong way. But just imagine how difficult it was to accept for the original recipients. If it's difficult for you, look at it through the lenses of somebody who was under the oppression of Nero in the year 64. The Roman Empire is killing Christians, lighting them on fire. Those Christians probably wrestled with this even more intensely than we do. What is, the, what is the end result when Christians abide by this teaching, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities? Even pagan governors should be grateful to have constituencies comprised of Christians. Right, that your jurisdiction will be full of Christians. Even if you don't believe in God, you should be grateful to have Christians within your purview because these Christians in your region that you govern well, they tend to be debt-free a lot of the time, right? They pay their bills, they pay their taxes. They actually do a way better job of taking care of the poor than you do. Can you name one government institution that does a really outstanding job of taking care of poor people? But as a church, we can just go and take care of it. These Christians, they're good to each other. You know, they, their holy book tells them to submit to rules and authority, so they, they obey the law except for speed limits. <laughs> and they, they have solid families. You know, they have strong marriages and they take good care of their children. So even if, even if you are a pagan governor, if you see this teaching, it should make you grateful and you should actually want more Christian constituents because of teachings like these. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work our next series is gonna be in Ephesians. Who's excited about the book of Ephesians? In the opening chapters, you're gonna see the mind-blowing theological background to this call to be ready for every good work. Why it says ready is that God's already prepared the good work for you to do. You just gotta be ready for it. To speak evil of no one. <laughs> All right, if you're sitting next to somebody and you're really hoping the Holy Spirit convicts them, please don't elbow him. Let the Spirit do the convicting, okay? Let the Spirit do the convicting. This is true, and it's important. Speak evil of no one. I've heard some downright creative renditions of teachings that I've given. All right, listen, I'm responsible for what I say. You are responsible for what you say I say. Understand? Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Those words are gonna set you free, man. Avoid quarreling. What a time to be alive. You have in your pocket a computer that can find something to offend you in eight seconds. If you want to be offended, you can be. Well, it takes us a few seconds and a quick Google search. But we're told to avoid quarreling. So when the quarreling comes up, when the opportunity to quarrel you know, arises, which it will, it's ubiquitous, 
in our culture. You could say, nope, you know what? I'm going to walk away from the water cooler because Titus 3 tells me to avoid quarreling. I'm going to Chuck's Donuts. Bye. And then watch how much happier you are without quarreling in your life. And you get donuts. The Word of God is amazing. <laughs> avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. Isn't that exquisite wording? To show perfect courtesy toward all people. There's no other sacred text like this. This particular brand of courtesy does not discriminate. It is perfect courtesy, and it's toward all people. Courtesy, like grace, is something that's not inherently deserved by its recipient. Courtesy is not earned. Courtesy actually is a stronger indicator of what's happening in your heart. Your willingness or your apprehension to show courtesy toward all people is a better indicator, a barometer of your own soul. You are called to show perfect courtesy, Christian, to all people. Does the text say all people? Does it have qualifiers? All people who look like you? All people who are the same race as you? All people who are of the same socioeconomic stratus as you? No, it simply says, all people. Perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse three, I love the humility in this verse. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When we first met Paul, it was in Acts 7, 58, at the first public murdering of a Christian in the New Testament era, Stephen was being stoned to death and he was praying for the people who threw the stones that extinguished his life. And overseeing the whole thing was a young Pharisee, a prodigious young student of Gamaliel, lending his Pharisaical authority and approval to the whole martyrdom. And people were laying their garments at his feet as a sign of respect. His name was Saul of Tarsus, named after the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now this is the same one who would be called of God, God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Thereafter, not changing his name as is commonly thought, he would just go by the more Gentile-friendly version of his same name, Paul. Saul of Tarsus is Paul the apostle, the author of our text. So when he says in verse 3 that he was once prone to malice and envy and hatred, he really means it. We first met this guy as he lent his approval authoritatively to the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. I love his candor. I love his humility. He acknowledges that he was once prone to the same kind of sins that he sees in other people. Listen, a gospel presentation given condescendingly is an oxymoron. All right, you cannot condescend to somebody with the gospel because the gospel is all about grace that you've received yourself. So if you're condescending with a gospel presentation, you don't understand the gospel. Paul acknowledges in verse three, I was once prone to these exact same sins and left my own devices apart from the Holy Spirit's conviction. And when I do trip into those old ways as redemption and reconciliation and washing and regeneration, I'd be the exact same way. In fact, I was. All right, here's an experiment. There's absolutely, there's zero judgment here for this. I just want to see because it's beautiful. How many of you, before you became a Christian, 
took some serious issues with Christianity and with Christians. Can I see your hands? All right, my friends who currently hate Christians. Did you see all the hands? It won't be long now. You came to Highlands Community Church. That's dangerous business. You're going to hear the gospel. Have your heart transformed. And there won't be any condescension on our parts. The, the fact that you hate Christianity, that you would hate us. No, we used to be the exact same way. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, that's exactly what we would be. Because we ourselves were once prone to such malice. But, look at verse 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And now we are forever changed. Like our new brother in Christ told me. My life is unrecognizable now from where it was a year ago when the gospel first came into my life. My Mormon friend, you've never known goodness like this. You've never known kindness like this because you thought that salvation was a meritocracy. It is just the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. When I was at high school camp, I waited in line at the snack shack and I heard like four students in line ahead of me order espresso drinks. That fascinates me. That impresses me because like when I was a high school kid, I called it espresso. I didn't know what it was. And you know, we had just like a Mr. Coffee at my house. But like these high school students were ordering pour overs and Americanos. And that inspired me. And I got up on the stage in front of the high school kids and began to teach a lesson. And I knew this was coming. I knew Titus 3 was coming up in their curriculum and in our sermon. So they're here with us now and they're hearing this sermon. I knew this was coming. I wanted to prep them for it. And I, was, I, was also, I also took note of just how many of them were asking questions about Mormonism because it's very prevalent in their ministry context. And I began to talk about coffee and lean into the fact that like as, as Seattleite, as Seattleite students, I mean, like, they, they grew up with, you know, coffee in their bottles as babies. <laughs> and I said, some of you don't even believe that, like, Keurig coffee is real coffee. And one fiery, brilliant young woman of God said, amen. <laughs> and in expounding upon the text and showing them, showing them I, I broke the news to them that the Mormon church doesn't let their people have coffee. And the students stood up. This is too much. Oh, it was a grave injustice, and they were ready to leave the tent and run down the mountain and evangelize the first Mormon they found and take them to have their first cup of coffee. My Mormon friend, your abstinence from coffee does nothing about the sins you've committed. You understand that? It is simply because of the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior that we are saved, not because of your righteousness, because of his loving kindness. You've never known goodness like this. You've never known loving kindness like this. You thought it had to be earned. It's actually given freely by his grace. Look at verse five. He saved us. Oh, that's so important. Not just my Mormon friend, but my legalist friend in general. Whatever brand of legalism you hold, you think you need to do something to earn your salvation? You see those three words? He saved us. That means that we don't save ourselves. He saves us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. 
but according to his own, say that beautiful word with me, mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the washing, regeneration, meaning you're dead, now you're alive again. By the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, this adverb is so important, richly, <laughs> through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This teaching is interesting. It, it draws upon an ancient tradition with its roots deep in Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel gave similar imagery in depicting God's heart toward Israel and how even though they didn't deserve it, he would wash them clean and make them new again. And then the same imagery comes back when Jesus in John 3, the same famous chapter from whence we get, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. In that same conversation, Jesus drew upon that imagery of the washing water by the Holy Spirit. And now Paul has just applied it in the modern ecclesial context. So from Ezekiel to Jesus, and now Paul speaking to Titus, here's where this tradition began. Ezekiel 36, 25 reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Remember, this is the Old Testament. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 21, a picture of heaven? And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. My legalist friends, stop taking pride in your works of righteousness to the neglect of acknowledging your sin. Look at verse 32, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. Israel did nothing to deserve this regeneration. It was strictly from the outpouring of the grace of God. It's not because of their behavior, it is despite their behavior. Do you see? It is grace, it is mercy, it's not earned. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. It was upon this same imagery beginning in Ezekiel with the washing of water by the Spirit, the rebuilding of the desolate despite its sin for the glory of God alone so that man gets no credit for what God has done. Right? We, we get no residuals for the glory of God. We're not under a royalties contract here with the glory of God and how he regenerates us and brings us back to life from the dead. The same theme occurs in John 3, 5. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
It is this same beautiful picture of the washing, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that Paul has now applied to the context of the church in speaking to Titus to tell his people as he plants churches and appoints elders all across the island of Crete. Look at verse seven. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This word justified carries significant theological salience. It paints a picture of someone who is a convicted lawbreaker standing before the judge, needing justice done upon him. But we might be justified. Though we are lawbreakers, we stand before the judge, we do so as free men and free women. How? Why? Because we've done something? No. The lawbreaker standing before the judge cannot do any good deed that undoes his guilt. Okay? If you are guilty, you are guilty, regardless of whatever good you do on top of that. The justification comes when the judge decrees the fine to be paid, pays that fee himself with his life, and then, look later in the verse, adopts the convicted one into his family. You're standing before the judge condemned. God has decreed what the fine would be. He has paid it himself with the life of his own son, and then he has adopted you as an heir so that being justified by his grace, not because of your works, but because of his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this is where it's gonna sound like I'm being outlandish, but stick with me. To be an heir of eternal life means that we are counted as equals with Jesus in judgment before God. That sounds like I'm going too far until you consider this. The work of the gospel atones not for most of our sin, but all of it. 100% of all of our sins atoned for and forgiven, cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. The gospel was not partial in its work. That would make it meaningless. You are forgiven, Christian, for every last one of your transgressions. Therefore, you are counted as a co-heir with Christ. Do you see? You see the sheer scope of the gospel itself. That we would be called heirs means that we are what? Sons and daughters of the king, yes? Now, who is the, who is the true son of God? That's Jesus. That means that if we are heirs, we are heirs with Christ. This is the extent to which you are cleansed. Absolutely. Tetelestai paid in full, not in part, completely atoned for, not partially redeemed. Oh, that we are entitled to the grace and love and affections. This heir status, heiress status, means that we inherit something, yes? That's quite a thought. Is it because of anything we've done? No, it's simply because of who our father is. When I first saw my son, Austin Elijah Campbell's heartbeat on a screen, this little tiny spot was oscillating monochromatically back and forth between black and white at about 135 beats a minute. I saw it, and instantly, that was the end of me. That was the end of me, because instantly, the life represented by this image on the screen meant more to me than my own life. That was it. This life means more to me than my own life, and I will not hesitate to lay my life down for his I looked at that little tiny heartbeat and said, that's it. I forevermore love you. I love you forever. I can't not love you. 
I will always love you. I will love you forever. I will love you, love you, love you, love you forever. No matter what you do or where you go or who you become, you will always be my son. I will always love you and I will not hesitate to lay my life down for you. And I know my bride feels the same way. Just because you're my son, I will love you. We feel this way about all of our children. And it's not because of anything they've done to earn it. If anything, they're little bums and they need to get jobs. <laughs> Kids are expensive. But they are heirs to everything that we ever have in this life. And they are entitled to our love, not because of anything that they've done, but simply because, simply because they are our children. Now, don't you see, this is earthly. This is an earthly reflection of a greater heavenly reality. And the love that parents have for their children pales in comparison to the love that God the Father has for his children. It's not because of anything we've ever done to earn it. It's just because we're his children and he's our father. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us forevermore. And he lays down his life for us. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. My Mormon friend, he loves you. He loves you. If you would believe in Jesus, place your faith in him and not in yourself, you will not die but have everlasting life. You didn't earn this, but Jesus did. He went to the cross. He took upon himself the payment for our sins and he rose again from the dead in victory over it that you would be counted as an heir before God. What beautiful, beautiful grace. Verse eight brings us to a discussion about our good works then. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So Jesse, you've been saying the whole sermon about how like our works don't save us. So what's the point of good works? Think of it in terms of cause and effect. All right, legalism would tell you that if you do good works, you'll be saved. All right, because you do these things, you save yourself. All right, and God helps. Okay? Good works are the cause, salvation is the effect. But according to the Bible, the reverse is true. All right? you, do not do, you do not do good works and save yourself, rather because you're saved, you do good works. Salvation is the cause, and these good works that flow from us are the effect. We're not saved because we do good works. We do good works because we've been saved. These good works, this fruit of our ministerial lives, it is one of the evidences of salvation. First John teaches about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as one way we can know we're saved. This love that we have for other people, this love we have for one another, for this love for God's church, this is another evidence of salvation. That we do the will of God proves that we belong to him. But these good works that flow from our lives are one of the evidences that we've been saved. So in terms of cause and effect, good works are not the cause of salvation. They are one of the effects. So we devote ourselves to good works. And we avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. These genealogies, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew fixation with genealogies is important and good. In fact, it is the very point of the whole book of Ruth. The book of Ruth ends with a brief genealogy, and that's the point of the whole book. It shows you that the story is not just an example of leveret marriage applied. It is the backstory to the Messiah, leading to David himself. The opening genealogy in Matthew is important. The genealogy in Luke is important. But these, these original recipients were fixated with genealogies. 
spinning mythologies about their ancestral lines, the equivalent to my dad could beat up your dad. And these genealogical conflicts were meaningless. This dissension was meaningless. The quarrels about the law were unprofitable and worthless in our context. When somebody comes to your door and tries adamantly, skilled and trained and well-rehearsed in argumentation to get you to take on the same shackles that he wears, he crosses a line from futility to evil with a smile. It is futile to tell somebody to do something that's going to increase their standing with God when it's not going to increase their standing with God. It is evil to condemn someone to a lifetime on a treadmill. The futility of legalism crosses the threshold into evil when you try to argue other people into it. Avoid, avoid this kind of controversy. Avoid these kinds of quarrels. As for a person who stirs up division, verses 10 and 11 just speak to church health. As for someone who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. God will deal with him. God will deal with her. The final verses paint a picture of the success of Paul's ministry. Because he was told in Acts 9, you're my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then look at the outright like, pagan god and goddess names in the closing verses. Artemis in verse 12. Zenos in verse 13. Apollos. I mean, that's definitely named after Apollo, one of the sons of Zeus and brother of the goddess Artemis, named in verse 12. And let our people devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Have you ever seen heirs and heiresses of billion-dollar trust fund fortunes? I mean, like, you're, you're going to receive billions of dollars. If, all you got to do is just, like, keep breathing, keep letting your heart beat, and just, you know, eat when you're hungry and sleep when you're tired, and then, boom, billions of dollars. Now, you didn't earn this. This is what, you know, your father has afforded you. You're just an heir. You're an heiress to this. And so as a result, heirs and heiresses for billion-dollar fortunes can be prone to debauchery because they have nothing else to do. Now think about this for a minute. Christian, you are infinitely more entitled than the world's most endowed heir or heiress because the world's richest heir or heiress gets a fortune that lasts only for this lifetime. But the gospel of Jesus Christ affords you as an heir, a son or daughter of God, to an eternal blessedness in heaven above. So what are we to do? Remain in idleness? Be prone to debauchery? And just let the trust fund mature? No. No, we are to be fruitful. We are actually a part of God's redemptive mission. We have been commissioned in the Great Commission by Jesus as a part of the redemptive story of God. We have been told to make disciples. We have an active role to play by God's command in redemptive history. That's beautiful. We are actually told to be rich in good works, to be fruitful with our Christianity. That's exquisite. We are told to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to care for the poor, to love one another. This is our role to play. Moreover, did you see, did you see the beautiful instructions unto hospitality that were within this text as well? All right, we are told, see to it that they lack nothing in verse 13. Okay, look, if you feel like you don't have any real spiritual gifts that are of use, 
All right, perhaps you're on the platform, but you can cook. You have one of my favorite spiritual gifts of all, okay? All right, like food is a big deal in the kingdom of God. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, what's the first thing he did with his disciples? They ate. All right, when we get to heaven one day, what's the first thing we're gonna do? We're gonna eat. How did Jesus tell us to remember him and his broken body and his spilled blood? It's with food. All right, so praise God. If you have the gift of hospitality, you are anointed. And you are told, we are told in verse 13, see to it that these people lack nothing. And practice hospitality. That's a very, very important gift in the kingdom of God. Devote ourselves to good works, verse 14 says, so that we could be saved? No. So as to help cases of urgent need not be unfruitful. Thus, this mercy, this grace, our entitlement as heirs and heiresses leads not to idleness, but to fruitfulness for the kingdom of God and to his glory. My Mormon friend, my legalist friend, my friend caught up in some of the trappings that can be bestowed upon us by our Catholic church, my Jehovah's Witness friend, my Mormon friend. The Father is not withholding his love until you get your act together. My Bible says he lavishes it upon us that we would become sons and daughters of God. It is not because of your deeds, it's because of his love. It's not because of the tasks that you add onto the gospel. It's because of his mercy. It's not because of the rules that you add on to the New Testament and then choose to follow. It is because of his grace, his grace, his grace, his grace, his grace, his unending grace, his indomitable grace, his transformative grace that you are saved through faith in Jesus alone. And this is not of yourselves so that none of us can boast. It is a gift from God. Grace, 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 grace. So come to the table and feast. The Holy Spirit draws upon your heart. This is your invitation into the very family of God. My Mormon friend, my prayer is that you would place your faith in Jesus right here and now and be saved and be set free, and leave your shackles on the floor. As God draws upon your heart, would you pray with me right now? Let's go before God. Father, I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me. That you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not a God myself. I've fallen short of the glory of God. My works of righteousness are filthy before you. I have sinned. My arrogance is misplaced, convicted by your spirit for sin. I feel humility and brokenness over my sin. And I admit, God, the wages of my sin is death. What I get in return for my works is not my own universe to be the Lord over, but is death, is hell apart from you, God. But Romans 6, 23 says, the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus. And John 14, 6 says that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. There's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So fill with the Holy Spirit of God. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. 
Highlands Community Church, would you proclaim Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So now God, not because of anything that I've done, not because of my deeds, not because of the rules I've added to your Bible, not because of my acts of righteousness, because of your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, I am saved. Thank you, Jesus. A child of God, an heir to the kingdom, by grace and mercy alone, in Jesus' name. Would you stand up and worship with us, some of us, for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ, set free from legalism and abiding in the mercy that comes to heirs of the kingdom.